You're about to hear my conversation with Brent Joyce. We're taking a different approach to podcasts where we are going to produce them weekly. You can expect to hear from Dustin Reed every other week with Dustin focusing on fixed income and macro, Brent focusing on the equity markets. And today we get into his first podcast about equity markets where we talk about the US, Canada, we talk about emerging markets, as well as some sectors. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with Brent Joyce. Brent is our investment strategist. Brent, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Matt. Thank you. Brent, before we get into some of your views on equity markets and the like, why don't you spend two to three minutes just telling us about a bit about your background and what you're doing at McKenzie? I'd be happy to. So I'm a new addition to McKenzie as of January of uh, this year. Uh, there was a whole raft of us that uh, joined the organization through the acquisition of GLC Asset Management uh, that closed at the end of uh, 2020. But I've been in this role for the better part of a little over five years now. I was the investment strategist at GLC and now I'm happy to be the investment strategist here uh, at McKenzie. In a nutshell, I, I have the luxury in this role to be able to circulate around the organization, you know, our boutique structure, have conversations with, uh, pick up um, the best ideas, if you will, the, the strongest conviction themes from a variety of our teams. I have the input um, both two-way, I, I contribute to and, and receive the benefit of being a part of McKenzie's Global Investment Committee. Uh, I know Dustin Reed's uh, been a regular contributor to these podcasts, so he's also on that that team as well. So there's eight of us. And I stand up a view of the world, which we'll get into. But at, um, you know, me personally, I'm a capitalist uh, at heart, I would say. And this job is really my dream job. It, it marries my passion for capital markets with uh, what's always been really an insatiable curiosity and a voracious appetite for current events. And I get to spend my time analyzing and dissecting and having great conversations with with smart colleagues, you know, to interpret um, all these events that really is at the intersection of equity markets, fixed income markets, politics, geopolitics, business and finance. And we try to discern between short-term noise and longer-term trends. Um, and then I get the, the opportunity to share that with uh, with all of our clients from coast to coast. So that's really is the role. I have a team. Uh, we do a lot of our own organic work, uh, crunching spreadsheets. We um, are plugged into the street and pay attention to uh, the narrative that's happening in markets and then filter and uh, distill that down into our views. Excellent. Uh, well, uh, I'm glad that we have you here because I, I indeed have invited you on to hear some of the longer term trends, probably this episode uh, specifically. Um, and uh, I thought that maybe we'd go around the globe focusing on equity markets. Uh, as you referenced, we do have Dustin on regularly uh, and he fulfills sort of the fixed income macro uh, side of things. But uh, I really love your perspective on equity markets. Maybe we can start with the largest uh, market in the world in the U.S., um, you know, what are your thoughts on the U.S. market? I mean, clearly uh, 2020 was a very strange year, to say the least. 
uh, coming into 2021, uh, we had a, a tremendous rebound and, and frankly, a few hiccups uh, more recently. So what, what do you see out of the U.S. market? Yeah, some of that is is really just in the, in the way that you describe that question, right? The largest equity market, uh, largest capital markets really in the world. And you you step back and you think about the the footprint, if you will, of the United States, you know, quote unquote, um, and, and its share of, of world trade and contribution to world GDP and the like. And then you look at the equity markets, there's a pretty big gap, right? You have a disproportionate amount of of world equity market capital capitalization that's that's domiciled uh, in the U.S. And I think there's lots of reasons for that. You know, global equity markets, certainly the mega cap nature of them these days, whether it's in the U.S. or Europe, even here in Canada, right? they're dominated by a handful of large players, the, the global multinationals. But even when you start to think about it from a revenue contribution, how much uh, does that market cap in the U.S. match the revenue footprint, which would be then its global scale, there's a bit of a disconnect. And what I'm getting to is I I love the U.S. market. Um, it's going to be with us for a long time. It is home to some of the most innovative and, and dynamic corporations on the planet. Um, it has a great way to embrace you know creative destruction, which I think is a healthy part of capitalism. But it has been the market darling and it is you know the most popular place uh, for folks to put their money. And that makes me a bit nervous. You know, this year, you know, mentioned strange years, right? But, you know, it has not been the year of the U.S. market thus far. It really has right. been a, a non-U.S. story uh, so far this year. So I think investors need to remind themselves that equities, um, you know, they're not a popularity contest in the long run. What's the, the famous saying, I think, from from Buffett in the in the near term, right? They're a, a voting machine, which is sentiment driven. But in the long term, they're a weighing machine. And some of these fundamentals as to your footprint in revenue and earnings, you know, they, they will come through. And the U.S. market is expensive. Um, so we have long had for the last six months or so when the fog started to clear and, and get a bit of a sense of where earnings can come from in the U.S., a difficult time squaring that circle with, you know, further further price appreciation, uh, particularly you know from these levels. And maybe a follow up on that. You, you referenced the mega cap nature of stock markets really around the globe, uh, but that's particularly evident in the U.S. with um, with uh, the five or six largest uh, stocks really accounting for a significant amount of the S and P five hundred exposure. Um, when you when you see uh, fundamentals and you see um, and you talk about the expensiveness of stocks, are you are you really talking about the mega caps? Or are you seeing that U.S. stocks sort of all through the capitalization structure tend to be a little bit more expensive than than companies in other places in the world? No, it's a good question because there are opportunities for sure. The top line indices, which is where we do spend a, a lot of our time and, and energy thinking about. Uh, you know, sure. the S&P 500. But we think we, we still talk in terms of geographies, the U.S. market, the Canadian market, Europe market, that sort of stuff. But really, when you think about it, you pull that back and say, what are the underlying sectors within those markets and, and how do those behave on a, on a global scale? And the U.S. market is dominated by information technology, consumer um, sectors, and, and now the communications sector, which is, is you know, still got a lot of these new economy uh, companies in it. And, you know, the, the valuations there are um, sometimes hard to get your head around. 
but the world has changed, right? And so one of the questions we like to ask ourselves at this juncture, if, if capital markets are behaving like COVID never happened, and that's what they're supposed to do, right? Equity markets are forward looking and trying to figure out what's the year, you know, what's the world going to look like eight, 10, 12, 18 months from now. And if that's mm -hmm. an environment that, you know, we certainly all hope uh, COVID is, is um, somewhat of a, of a memory at that point. Then the question I ask is measuring from pre COVID to today. I mean, the, the eye popping numbers that we've just rolled through in March and, and April from last year's lows, they really do, you know, throw things out of whack. They're, they're great for the media to, to, to throw these spicy sure. numbers up there. Um, but if you, even if you measure from pre COVID and you say, okay, the US market up from um, a year and a half or two years ago, still up 25, 30%. Um, certain companies, right, whether it's Amazon or Apple that are up, you know, 50, 60%. And you say, well, what has changed? If COVID ever happened, you know, for argument's sake. Well, for a company like Amazon, I would say lots has changed. The behavior on the part of consumers has fast forwarded because of the COVID crisis, um, attitudes toward consumption online. And so, yeah, that, that definitely throws their math all up in, into the air in a very positive way, right? And you can get your head around that business benefiting and seeing a real change um, in their share price and a change in the way that people think about that. I look at Apple, you know, on the other hand, I say, well, what has, what has fundamentally changed about that business in the past two years to justify how high the share price has moved? And, and I can't point to as many things as I can for Amazon. Right. Right, a new product here, what have you? Yes, they're they're an enabler of, of all things internet. Okay, so there's some of that, but does that justify the price being up 50, 60 percent? Time will tell. But that's the kind of way that we want to think about things. And you know, if we're going to go around the world here on markets. You think about the yeah. sectors that the U.S. does not have a lot of exposure in, and what's now sort of started to work. And it is um, this shift away from the growth names that are going to have to reconcile perhaps higher interest rates, higher discount rates to those earnings streams. And some of the COVID losers and even longer term uh, losers, if you think about energy in the past five, six, seven years uh, and the material space, um, base metals, things of that nature, the, the stuff that has not been the market darling. And those are the things that have been working in the near term. Those are areas that we still think have room to grow in a, you know, synchronized recovery, reopening uh, environment uh, as the world moves forward. And that, that moves us away from U.S. markets and into other areas. Well, maybe I'll, I'll uh, pick up on that theme and, and we'll go to our domestic market in Canada. Um, clearly, uh, Canada has long been characterized by concentrated uh, markets in different sectors financials, resources, uh, mining to a lesser degree. Um, sounds like you're fairly positive on uh, the resource opportunity. Uh, what do you think about the Canadian market as a whole? Where do you think uh, we're going? It's not just resources. I think the financials are a big part of uh, obviously the Canadian market, but just the value trade in general. And so the markets where they have a higher um, weighting, a bigger footprint than you would find in the U.S. Certainly Canada is one for sure. Europe comes to mind. And the Canadian banks have not been the, um, the same sort of, um, you know, face the same sort of, of headwinds as the, the European financials have. When you look at them on a global scale and you say, what, what drives these businesses? You know, it's near impossible to think about a traditional banking model in a punitive 
you know, negative interest rate environment like they've had in Europe. And so is that going to change? Well, you know, we expect we're on the cusp of German 10 year bond yields moving positive. We certainly have a steepening yield curve. So the, the difficulties that those outfits have made really at the, the core of, of the banking business are starting to become less of a headwind. And yet the share prices have hardly gone anywhere, not just in the last year and a half, but when you think back to the last eight, 10 years, right, it's been a tough, tough grind for, for financials. The Canadian banks are a little bit different. They're much more um, diversified businesses with the wealth management piece uh, in it. And, and the Canadian housing market certainly has had, um, you know, obvious uh, benefits uh, for, for Canadian bank and franchise, but they are a bit of a, a microcosm for you know, a bit of the juncture we stand at today for all equity markets. And it's, there's less and less to worry about. And a number of the key narratives that we've been talking about for, well, since, since the, the vaccine announcement back in November, um, have fast forwarded and have played out rather quickly. One of the things that's apparent to me through this health crisis and, and the, the COVID uh, experience over the last year and a half is the speed at which events um, take place certainly has accelerated. Um, crises for hundreds of years have accelerated existing trends. And and certainly the speed at which the world moves at, you know, I don't think anybody thought when COVID broke out that we would have, you know, vaccines uh, in, in November as quickly as we did. And then, you know, the rollout has surprised folks. Disappointments along the way for sure, but you know, we're over 70% first dose here in Canada and it's, um, you know, still May, right? So things have moved rapidly. And same thing in, in financial markets. We've had the growth value discussion, the large cap, small cap discussion, the U.S. versus non-U.S. discussion. And these opportunities that have presented themselves, some of them have closed quickly and, and some of them still persist. And so we just came through reporting season for the Canadian banks. And it is a bit of a microcosm for a lot of this um, sort of narrative. The expectation was they were going to beat the analyst earnings estimates, and they did, and, and they beat them very handily. Um, all of them were double digits, and a couple of them were almost 30% um, surprises. Embarrassing for those of us in the pundit community that make these sorts of forecasts, but sure. uh, <laughs> the, the numbers have been all over the map, so we'll, we'll um, take a mulligan, I guess. But the question now is, all right, so how much further surprise might we see? The yield curve has been steepening in Canada. The bank share prices are up over 20% on a year-to-date basis. The good news is starting to get baked into the cake. And I don't see headwinds developing, but certainly some of these tailwinds for the reopening trade, if we think back to the U.S., for the yield curve trade, if we think about financials in both Canada and Europe, um, they're not as juicy as they were three months ago, six months ago, and certainly nine months ago when you know pre pre vaccines, you really had to take a lot of a, of a leap of faith. Um, so the the concern I have is markets like to climb the wall of worry, right? To use um, uh, a phrase that many of your listeners might be familiar with. And the worries are less today as, as a human being. And that's fabulous, right? That we're making progress and we have less to worry about. But, you know, arcanely capital markets do like to climb this wall of worry. And we've moved a long way in, um, in a reasonable amount of time. And where are the positive surprises going to come from as we move forward for the next six weeks or six months or even a year, perhaps?
Interesting. Um, I guess one of the uh, one of the largest uh, fears that we're hearing about time and time again is inflation picking up. Uh, and that impacting um, everything from fixed income valuations to to stock market valuations, um, and it, it strikes me that that is the I would say the primary fear that the market is uh, is fixated on at, at this point. Uh, one, would you would you agree with that characterization? And and two, you know, how fearful are you of, of inflation? And and what are your um, what, what are your thoughts on how inflation may impact various markets? Yeah, so it's a good thing now that our fears are occupied by you know supply chain worries and inflation worries. These are um, much less fearful things than folks you know curves uh, of infection and, and um, morbidity rates and, and things that we worried about six months ago. So it's, it's in some respects a good problem to have. Is sure. one aside comment. Um, but you're right. That is the the perceived fear at the moment. For equities, inflation in and of itself is not the boogeyman. It's the central banker's response to inflation that markets really are worried about. And, and it's a nuanced way to state it. But let's not forget that earnings growth is the lifeblood of equities. That's That's the fundamentals. That's the weighing machine through long periods mm-hmm. of time. If you grow your earnings and you have shareholder-friendly practices uh, in a healthy business, then your share price will be rewarded uh, over over time. And earnings are nominal, right? So corporations uh, eat some of that inflation through higher nominal earnings growth. So equities are a reasonable inflation hedge in and of themselves. You know, rotation within equities, that sort of stuff, for sure, we can, we can have that conversation. But writ large, equities... Uh, aren't all that concerned about a modest amount of inflation. They can deal with that. What everybody is worried about is the end of easy money and the, you know, the, the old sort of tired um, mantra that central banks uh, are the murderers of the business cycle, right? That by starting to have a hiking cycle and a tightening cycle, it is the diet and exercise that's necessary to curb uh, over enthusiastic uh, markets and hot hot economies it's a necessary um, remedy at a certain point in the business cycle and it comes at the hands of central bankers and so that's what equities are concerned about i do think it's disingenuous at this juncture to say that inflation will be completely transitory and i do think you're, you're getting a number of voices around the globe, whether it's uh, in the UK, here at home for sure, Bank of Canada, you know, New Zealand joined that parade, and, and certainly a number of voices from the Federal Reserve in the US that are starting to at least ask the question, how can we know what's transitory and what's not transitory in the face of numbers that are moving around um, in sizes that we've never experienced in this, this sort of short-term time frame? And so that's the root of the uncertainty. We know markets don't like uncertainty. And so we have the next three months or so where it is just a fact of life that the numbers are going to be very large swings from base effects last year, from from we know the reopening pinch points on employment and and pent-up savings and pent-up demand on, on businesses. All those things have to work their way through the system. These are, like I said, good problems to have right? Corporations are on this planet to meet demand. 
So it will happen. It'll, it, it takes time. Supply chains need to be, you know, repaired and, and, uh, you know, workarounds and things of that nature, but it will get fixed. Far better problem to have too many customers knocking at your door and having to turn some away than nobody knocking at your door, right? That's the problem that corporations struggle to fix, but they can fix the, the too much demand problem. My concern is in, in the absence of some of these other worries, thankfully, the market will try to find something to worry about. That's often what markets do. We're heading into the summer period. It is typically an illiquid time of the year with vacations. Um, anyhow, I think that might be exacerbated this summer, given how many holidays people have banked up and the certainly the, the appetite for uh, people to take some vacations. So it's a delicate time of the year. Let, let's put it that way. And we have this very foggy, noisy data. Central banks trying to thread a very difficult needle with still letting markets know that they believe this inflation is transitory. Some of it, I think, is it, it is. So, so to answer your question, there is a chunk of this inflation that is transitory. There is also a chunk that I think we have to ask ourselves, if it shows up September, October, November, when the numbers start to settle down a little bit, that in the face of trillions of dollars of money printing, in the face of trillions of dollars of spending, uh, particularly in the U.S., although you know we've got some infrastructure plans here in Canada as well. Um, the whole world is trying to green their economy, so that's money being spent. Um, yeah. Can we really say that you know GDP growth that is above trend of the last ten years in the developed world isn't going to have some non-transitory inflation? Uh, and if it does, that still doesn't mean that's the you know uh, the be-all and end-all, or that equity markets have to have a you know, a bear market just because we've got inflation running a bit hot. That's the part that the Fed has been very vague on. So this new inflation targeting regime that um, they don't necessarily seem to have landed on what that means. They certainly have done a very poor job of communicating it to the, to the street. You know, that's where the next several months, meeting in June, meeting in July, Jackson Hole in August, um, there are going to be a lot of questions that the, the market may start to run a bit impatient with the, the Fed's, uh, it'll be okay, um, inflation is transitory type comment. And it's, it's the type of thing that when markets are already priced for pretty sanguine outcomes um, and the positive surprises from earnings and vaccine rollouts uh, are all behind us, uh, you know, we've had some of those helping us for the last three to six months. Where are we going to get those in the next three to six months? This is the type of thing where the market could have a, a sort of a mini tantrum, if you will. Um, and technically, again, you look at you say, oh, how long have we come without a 10% correction? You know, it's starting to, to stretch into the many, many months uh, since we've seen what are typically normal, healthy, to be expected, you know, 7, 8, 10, 12 type uh, equity market corrections uh, come along on a fairly frequent basis and we're overdue. Um, you know, just on a day count, if, if you will. That's great. Um, that's I appreciate the comments on that. Maybe I'll ask one last question uh, about your view on emerging markets. It sounds like, uh, you know, with some of the uh, themes that you've already talked about with resources, banking, sort of a reflationary theme um, that would uh, benefit uh, emerging markets, at least to my mind. Do you agree with that? And are you excited about the prospects there? So we opened up uh, this conversation about longer term trends, um, and that's a, a good one where we can sort of juxtapose 
what the next um, six months or a year might hold versus, you know, the really important um, trends that are hopefully going to span five, seven, ten and years and beyond. Uh, and obviously, emerging markets isn't a homogeneous group. It's, it's not all created equal. I think we have to think about China, given its its size uh, in emerging markets. Ask the question whether it's in fact even belongs in emerging markets any longer, or is it somewhat yeah. of its own asset class? But those are for another day. I, I think about the complexion of emerging markets, and you're right. the The view historically has been that these are dominated by resources, uh, energy, and, and financials. And 12, 15 years ago, that was very much the case. The, the beauty of the thing in emerging markets now is, aside from some of the obvious um, growth opportunities and just the scale of them, emerging markets have changed their complexion where you do have information technology and consumer-oriented uh, sectors being large weights in EM today. So I liken it to a bit of a barbell approach. You have one foot in in the the, the trade that has been dominating the U.S. market, the new economy, information technology, consumer side of things, and you still have a meaningful exposure to the resource, energy, commodities, financials space. So, whichever one of those happens to take the baton over the over the next little while, you've got a bit of cover uh, in emerging markets. So, that's where the the positive neutrum story sort of comes to a bit of a halt, and it's. The thing to think about if you take China and its footprint in emerging markets and you say, okay, so the COVID started first in China, China was first to exit COVID, they're further down the the path to recovery from an economic standpoint. If you look at the numbers coming out of China, they're also the furthest down the path to normalizing uh, policy uh, supports that were put in place to nurse the economy through the COVID crisis. And I look to China and say, is that the um, scenario if they're just simply a little further down on the timeline that we need to think about for developed markets, US, Canada, and Europe, where the punch bowl starts to be removed, it's time to return to normal. And, and you know, uh, we all long f- for that as, um, you know, as society. But for capital markets, a return to normal will mean standing on your own two feet without some of these supports from central banks and, and fiscal authorities. And how will capital markets react to that? Well, we look at what's happening in emerging markets, uh, driven by some of the tightening at the margin in China. And this isn't this isn't um, you know, ratcheting down the bolts on the tightening. This is a fairly methodical movement away, a, a recognition that the emergency is, is starting to wane. And we'll have to get there in the West as well. They've had a you know ten plus percent correction in emerging markets um, type of a shakeout, um, normal, healthy, reasonable response to this changing backdrop, and that's the type of thing that I look at and say, well, that's maybe what we would see in developed markets. The good news is that's now happened in emerging markets, so they're cheaper on a relative basis. Um, they've had some of these tests uh, and, and passed them, um, so the longer term trend has not broken down. Um, they just have had a nice, healthy cleanse, if you will. And so that starts to make me feel a little bit more optimistic about um, the footing that they're starting from today being a bit more realistic for the realities of what the next six to 12 months hold in the return to normal that we all welcome, but does come with a few things that capital markets are going to have to square up against. Brent, uh, thanks very much for your time. We'll call it there. Uh, this was great. I really appreciate it. 
My pleasure. I look forward to doing more of these with you, Matt. Great. Me too. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.